Memphis. I am so excited to have you here with me today. I'm Sana, and you're listening to Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. And remember, you can also tune in online at wyxr.org and catch up with previous shows as well. Every Saturday morning, I'm joined by experts from across the country who are investigating our most pressing social issues and common curiosities. Over the next hour, we'll learn about their motivations, their inspirations, and of course, what they know about the world around us. So grab a cup of coffee and get ready for a fun and insightful conversation. So over the past few years, we've seen growing attention to student debt. And of course, you probably know that student debt relief was a major topic in the Democratic primaries, and it continues to be central to incoming administration as well. And so for most folks who attended or are attending college, student debt is almost assumed, right? Everybody just has it. Um, And in fact, borrowers in the US owe about $1.7 trillion of student loan debt. Oh my gosh, y'all. And for borrowers with federal student loans, the average student loan debt in America is over $36,000, according to some recent data um, from the Department of Education. And this is a 26% increase in the amount of debt students took on a decade ago. And those are just some quick facts. We're going to get way, way, way more in depth into this topic of student debt. Today, I have joining me Dr. Louise Seamster, who is an assistant professor of African American Studies and Sociology and Criminology at the University of Iowa. Her research examines contemporary mechanisms for the reproduction of racial and economic inequality, especially in terms of debt, racial urban politics, and their intersection. Her work on predatory inclusion in student debt and debt contribution to the racial wealth gap has led to extensive policy advocacy, including research informing Senator Elizabeth Warren's student debt forgiveness plan. Welcome, Dr. Seenster. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me on. Yes, thank you so much. I am, I think, obsessed now with student debt, um, and I'm so excited to have you here with us this morning. Great. I'm glad to be here this morning. Yes. So, you know, when I think about student debt, well, obviously I'm thinking about, you know, going to college, getting your degree. And for so many of us, we were really sold on this idea of like, you go to college, the college degree is going to just open up your life (laughs) to, you know, the American dream, to higher (laughs) wages, a better job, house, car, family, you know, just everything. Um, But we're seeing that this is not the case almost at all maybe (laughs) maybe it's even hindering us in our attainment of the american dream uh i think things have changed a lot since um we started selling this idea of um higher education being the path to get to 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 get that american dream through student loans in particular so Mm -hmm. i mean um before that, higher education was more the, you know, the playground of the wealthy and white people and men in particular. So, um, you know, we, we, we did it, you know, of the people who managed to get to college, mm-hmm. um, who weren't already wealthy white men. Um, yeah, it, it was, it was definitely a bridge to mobility. Um, and, and it also has brought, um, a, you know, millions of people into economic mobility and stability over the last century. 
but things change. Things can change. <laughs> a system mm -hmm. that had one intention and function and um, set of outcomes can not work that way 40 years later. And, um, you know, a lot of people don't know how much cheaper a state school used to be in mm -hmm. the 70s than it is now. Um, so a lot of people, the, the people for whom this system of federal student loans as a way to get school worked, were paying a lot less for school, were able to pay off their loans, get a good job. Inequality was much lower back mm -hmm. then. Um, wages were relatively high, expenses were relatively low. And so we kind of used that as the template um, for this is what everybody should do. And yet you know, the game changed as everybody was playing and the rules of the game. Um, so we know that tuition is much higher, even at state schools. We know that um, meanwhile, wages have not kept track. Um, right. and, uh, you know, minimum wage is still about the same that it was when I was getting minimum wage in, as, as a teenager. So, um, you know, my, my students are graduating into an environment where they're having a hard time making more than $10 an hour unless they go back to graduate school. So mm -hmm. what was becoming, you know, what used to be the bridge into the middle class or, or like path disability is, can itself become its own trap that I think more people are, are feeling um, that we, we put all our eggs in this one basket of student loans rather than you know, keeping strong worker protections and, and making sure people um, had enough good jobs mm -hmm. to do at the end of them, uh, at the end of their degree. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking about what you said about we're really kind of trapped in this older dream, but our reality is now that it's not, it's not working for us. Instead, we are getting, you know, we're getting saddled with the debt, but there's no, the opportunities that were supposed to be available to us, those have disappeared. So we're kind of stuck. What I, the, the way I first, when I first started trying to make sense of what was happening with student debt, um, the, the pattern that it looked the most like was subprime mortgages, mm. where mortgages used to be when the federal government first created these like really good mortgages that were long-term, you didn't have to put so much money down. That was intentionally created for white middle-class Americans to be able to buy a house and build wealth. And that one policy allowed, it was one of many policies, but that built the white middle-class kind of mm -hmm. out of nothing. It hadn't existed to this degree before. And that was, um, building intentionally building and protecting white wealth within white neighborhoods mm -hmm. at the expense of people of color and at the same point that um mortgages that people started to say okay well let's let other people of color into this avenue to to get to build that wealth to get the american dream because the other main you know go to college buy a home are the two like pillars mm -hmm. of this goal right so um you know, in the in the 90s and early 2000s, um, uh, black and brown Americans who were told um, do the right thing by a house, mm -hmm. they were often steered into these subprime mortgages that were not giving them the same terms that white Americans had been enjoying for the last decades. They were mm -hmm. high interest, they were predatory, they were often fraudulent, um, and then they were traded on 
by the financial industry um, profiting when they defaulted and couldn't repay. Mm-hmm. So that had a very different purpose than the purpose of wealth building for white America that the mortgage, like the home mortgage had had initially. And yet it was the same system. They're both mortgages. And there's kind of, I think there's something similar going on with student loans where, I mean, we used to have strong federal and state public funding for higher education. Mm-hmm. Firstly, that got replaced first with student loans. And at, even so, at first, the student loan system worked relatively well for the middle class white Americans who were using it. But as more and more students of color enroll in higher education, the public support for public higher ed has um, evaporated. Mm-hmm. And so um, instead, we see this system that is saddling um, people of color uh, with more and more debt as their way supposedly to 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 achieve you know even economic stability we're not talking about mobility at this point but just Mm -hmm. you know hoping that they could maybe just work one full-time job at a time Mm -hmm. it seems like the goal for more and more americans yes yes i'm so glad you brought up this idea of stability um, because that really is what we see college degrees and you know student debt as providing basically just a kind of baseline stability Mm -hmm. versus the older version or vision of it as providing mobility and i think those are two totally different conversations and perspectives of thinking about you know higher education and thinking about the returns on student debt right so I think a lot of people think of student loan debt as a type of you know good debt right Um, hoping that it's going to generate some good returns Mm -hmm. right and they and and it can you know it does it's still like going to college, getting a degree still means you will earn more over your lifetime than someone who didn't go to college. But that doesn't mean we can't be critical about what else it comes with and think about, um, you know, why we've kind of pushed ourselves against a wall where everybody feel, I feel like students, my students these days aren't, don't come to college and feel like I want to learn. They're like, oh my God, they they already feel this intense pressure of I need a job, I need to make this work, or my life is over, basically. Mm-hmm. And um, that's because we've kind of telescoped all the possibilities of life down to this one narrow pathway of like, if you want to make it at all, go to college in that. And it's a very, um, you know, it's a very individualist point of view of like, getting people to invest just in themselves um, at the cost of everybody else, rather than all of us fighting for better um, mm-hmm. jobs, whether or not you go to college, which we, we could do, but, it, but then it saddles you individually with that debt that then you feel like you have to pay off and it's your kind of personal burden. And that is also going to make people less likely to agitate politically mm-hmm. and organize because a lot of people feel guilty about their debt and shameful about it and they don't want to talk about it. Mm, Yes. Oh, absolutely. I want to get more into that in a minute. Uh, But first, I want to go back to something you said about how students um, 
you know, I think for me as well, as I was listening to you talk, I think about my students and the level of stress you just see them bringing into the classroom, whether in person or virtually now, <laughs> um, you yeah. know, and I work at the University of Memphis, the majority of students are, you know, local. So there is this intense pressure, especially in the type of city we're in, where, you know, I have to get a degree. This is my pathway to not only, you know, my success or stability, or even hopes of mobility, but also for my family, you know, mm -hmm. for brothers, sisters, you know, older family members, mom, dad, whomever, like this is what I absolutely have to do in order for me to get into any open doors, right? And you definitely can feel that in the students. Oh, absolutely. I, before I came to work at the University of Iowa, I worked at University of Tennessee, Knoxville for five years. And um, even over the time I was there, I was just tracking this like increasing stress level as a baseline among my students. And I was realizing how much the student debt system was translating. It was making it into my classroom and actually making it hard for me to teach effectively. Mm. And I really wanted to, like, it felt like every string I pulled to try and understand some mystery about how higher education or my just my daily job was working, I would pull it and I would find student debt at the end of it because mm -hmm. I would I would have really strong students um, breaking down at the yeah. end of each semester. And I was just trying to understand why do I have six students in crisis right mm -hmm. now? Um, and I started talking to them and found out that they were all over enrolled for above full-time credit hours. And they were doing this because they were trying to get that freebie extra class because the school, like many others, are selling them on the idea that if you're enrolled full-time, um, you're already paying full price. So you might as well load an extra couple of classes on top wow. um, and try and like get a free semester out of it at the end. And um, and that is not possible. It's not really possible to succeed semester after semester when you're taking five or six hard classes a semester, but you're also working close to full time as most yes. of them are. And, mm -hmm. and, you know, I had students working full time. I had students working night shifts at hospitals and coming in in the morning to class and falling asleep. Mm -hmm. um, they wanted to learn, but they were, they also were trying to live out this completely impossible schedule life and they were just living life in this sprint and mm -hmm. they could only keep it up for so long. And I just, I, I just think I, you know, we keep getting told by like abolitionists, if you want, we, if we want to get rid of a system, we have to exercise our imaginations to imagine what, things could be like otherwise. And I feel like this is really an abolition project when we're talking about student debt, because you have to think about getting rid of a system we take for granted, mm -hmm. and imagining something else. So I start with just imagining how much easier it would be for me to teach if my students didn't have to be like working full time and yet not even making enough money to like eat three meals a day, mm -hmm. not having enough time to eat three meals a day and just rushing through everything. If they could actually absorb some of what I was teaching them or enjoy it or take classes that they were interested in or, you know, just take their time. Um, mm -hmm. We just, we have this narrative about who students are and what they go to college for that really does not match up at all anymore. What, students are going to college for and what they're experiencing when they get there.
Mm-hmm. Yes, as you were talking, that's exactly what I was thinking about. You know, we have this kind of nostalgia of like college is just this time to kind of like have fun and party and <laughs> people, and you know, you're in the dorms and you're mm-hmm. making new friends. And oh, none of that. No. <laughs> like my students weren't even meeting people. Like I had them doing research methods for a long time, and I would have them go out into the world and. Do, take field notes mm-hmm. and what the the most common thing that they were noting was how isolated they felt mm-hmm. and how people were just like well I mean I know I worked at a big state school so I know this is different than my like little liberal arts experience but they talk about like you know people just walking by and avoiding eye contact and mm-hmm. and I I think that they didn't have time to make those like personal connections that can be so important for college um, and, and just like being a human, you know, yeah. having any time to, to be and exist as outside work in school that, um, it's really, it does not match. I don't think most students today match that vision we have of like people just hanging out in front of their fraternities all day. <laughs> right. Absolutely. And especially I'm thinking again, of course, about the university of Memphis, which we're largely a commuter school, you know, most majority of people are working full time uh, or working multiple, you know, multiple jobs on top of other household responsibilities. They're coming to class and then they're going to work or they're going home to take care of a parent mm-hmm. or, you know, kids or whatever. So it's not that, you know, kind of fun (laughs) college carefree experience that we kind of, you know, hold deeply in our hearts and, you know, think, oh, well, that's what's happening. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that just matches up with this idea of like what student let student debt is, is not what we're thinking of or what a student, uh, what a degree is, is not matching up with these outdated ideas that we have. Yeah. And I think also alongside that because we have this mental narrative of what people's experience of college is like and they think it's leisurely and just fun um that that they then say well they must have accumulated that debt because they decided not to work or or something you know that that there's this kind of assumption that well if you just had a job during college um which used to be enough to pay off all your tuition and living expenses then then you wouldn't be in this situation but um, my, uh, my students are not working to, they have no hope of making a dent really in their tuition, but they have a hope of like maybe covering enough for rent, mm-hmm. um, with their jobs, um, possibly enough to eat, mm-hmm. you know, a couple times a day. Um, and often, yeah, supporting their families, but it's not there. They, they are, um, they are, this is not a, either or situation of either you take on debt or you work. It's that most of them are are working and they are still drowning in debt by the time they're graduating. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember one student, I think it was my first semester um, teaching. Uh, I had a really strong student, but who'd been doing poorly in class. And she came up to me at, near the end of the semester and said, I think things are gonna turn around. I just quit my third job at Walmart. So from now on, I should have more time. And I was like, excuse me, your third job. And, and she just didn't even think anything of it. And I, I just realized that I needed to understand a lot more about what, what my students were going through because a lot of faculty don't realize. They just, they just see students drop off um, mm-hmm. the face of the earth or they, they, they see them complaining about reading or unable to do the work and they and they say, oh, their commitment isn't high enough or they don't want to do the work. They don't ask them how many hours a week they're working outside mm-hmm. of school. 
Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. Well, let's take a quick break. And then we, when we come back, I'd like to hear more about, you brought up this idea of debt and this kind of individualism and these feelings of shame as well. So we're going to get into that when we come back. You're listening to Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. This is Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Sanaa, and I'm here with Dr. Louise Seamster, an assistant professor at the University of Iowa, whose research examines debt, student debt, student debt cancellation, such an important topic. And before the break, I was just mentioning that you talked about this idea of the individualism that's kind of wrapped up in student debt or how people are thinking about it, even though we know it's something that almost everyone is experiencing. Experiencing, um, but how this idea of if you were only doing it right or doing it better, then mm -hmm. kind of makes us ashamed to have the conversations that could really actually move us forward and envision a different type of future. Mm -hmm. So if we have a, like a, a society in which, you know, it's like entirely inherited class where if you were born poor, you will die poor. If you're born rich, you'll die rich. Poor people have solidarity with each other. <laughs> like they're like I'm just saying abstractly. They're they're going to work together to try and improve their situation. They're you know they're more likely to. I'm not saying in every case, but um, if they if they have a promise that some of them, a few of them who are lucky, can make it out, they are less likely to be um, identifying with each other. They're more likely to identify with where they want to get to, mm -hmm. um, and that's what we do. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and, uh, you know, I don't think that it's accidental when we're talking about this shift happening around, happening around the 1970s, I already talked about the shift in higher education, becoming more open to people mm -hmm. of color and to women. Um, but it also was an era of a lot of social change. Yeah. So the civil rights movement was pushing open, uh, public institutions and public like access to public goods more broadly. And there was a lot of like cross racial solidarity cross like class solidarity organizing across groups of people that was very threatening to people in power so if you um you know get it getting everybody to kind of go home like literally to your you know your own home that you you you're you're paying off from the bank with your own little family um what better way to make sure you stay stay in place than to saddle you with debt um and that you ha then have to pay off um uh i i have even you know i need to look into this more but um some people have been talking about how the history of of these debt systems was intentionally like a response to uh civil rights and anti-war movement um as far as get, these students seem to have too much free time <laughs> um to, to protest um so uh this this shift from have like when we're talking about we we we're talking about the student loan system it seems like something that's existed forever mm -hmm. but it is only about 50 years old and before that you know especially for a public state school that mm -hmm. was funded by the federal government and by the state government primarily. And so you're, you know, you are paying a couple hundred dollars a semester, but you were not the customer. Like mm. the government was, was funding the institutions. They weren't funding it like attached to the student. Mm 
-hmm. And, and so this shift, what the loans did was they, they're giving loans to the student to then spend how they choose, but that shifts it to that individual focus of this one person is getting the benefit of a college degree. Mm. So people who have been talking about like free college or debt-free college movements are, are saying that we need to go back to seeing education for what it is, which is a social good and mm. that it is good to society as a whole to have more people graduate from college, whether or not they are the one person who got that college degree, mm -hmm. um, that, that we, you know, all kinds of measures of social good depend on having a more educated society and, um, and that we, and, and not in, in on top of that, like public higher education can serve other functions for us at, you know, whether that's doing research or, um, you know, like, I mean, the coronavirus <laughs> vaccine, you know, we, we, the, the, we, that we have all this capacity to um, study, investigate, and help improve the lives of people um, that, that is a benefit beyond to one individual student with, a, with trying to go to college or graduate school. So, um, by, by kind of shaving off this, this bigger public good into like individual benefits, that's how we've been able to shift it to this, like this new financial structure where one person went to college, they have that debt on themselves rather than the whole institution being funded. And then they, you know, anybody could go if they wanted to, that would be nice, wouldn't it? <laughs> Yes. I mean, just listening to you, you know, I'm thinking about just the sh multiple shifts in how we think about community or how we think about who is like us and who should be getting, you know, whatever benefits they may be. Right. And so thinking about this hyper individualistic society that we're in so that we do see it as like my individual opportunity to potentially become a billionaire, yes. <laughs> which means that, you know, everyone should go into student debt because it's okay because I have that, you know, potential to be that one person and not seeing myself as a community of folks, or even as you mentioned, education as a social good that benefits everyone and not just that one person. And that's just a total shift in how we think or how we are currently thinking, I guess, in the U.S., um, where it is more of a me and mine and not, you know, what about the common good? Yeah, yeah. And I think I, I've been trying to explain lately where I think the big um, push is, like, where, what the shift has, that, what the shift is that has to happen for us to like really understand what would change if we had like large scale student debt cancellation and, and then um, a shift in how we fund higher education to come after that. Mm -hmm. But I think a lot of it is actually psychological and that's why I've been talking a lot about the psychology of debt as shame and how effective it is and making you feel like, okay, I think my life is getting better, but until then I'm gonna hold out and you know hang tight and and, and uh, look down at other people, like whoever has it slightly worse than me. Mm -hmm. um, but that what, what would need to shift is, is both a feeling that other people deserve things um, that we, you know, getting out of this mentality of scarcity of like, you know, I want to have the best so that, so I want other people to have less good stuff than me. Mm -hmm. um, but also 
like, I'm not a psychologist, I'm a sociologist, so I, I'm, but I think a lot of it, when I talk to people, some of them don't seem to feel like they deserve to have, <laughs> to be free of student loans. Um, and that is where this stuff is so effective. It makes people who took out the loans feel like I would be a bad person if I didn't, you know, grind for the next four decades trying to pay this off. And I think, and that, that's where I think, um, where I really am like, wow, they did a number on generations of people that, that they're, that they feel that way where, you know, in other, plenty of other countries are still funding higher education the way that we used to. And <laughs> you, you can still um, go, go to university and, and, you know, be out a couple thousand dollars for the whole career. Um, and that we, we have, we've put ourselves in this situation and we, you know, we're inside a box and we won't look out the box, but we think that it's normal inside here and be like, okay, there's no way we can get out of this. Right. Absolutely. Exactly. As you said, we've really bought into the idea that we will have the student debt and that we should have the student mm -hmm. debt. Um, yeah. That's part of it as well. And what has yeah. really blown my mind in thinking about student debt is what you mentioned, this repayment and thinking about the decades um, <laughs> that it will take to repay student loan debt, your own personal debt. And I mean, I see so many people resign to the fact of like, it's just a bill that I'm going to have for the rest mm -hmm. of my life. Like I'm not yeah. even, um, the goal is not even to pay it off yeah. because yeah. I don't even see that as a possibility. Yeah. Yep. I've had those conversations too. And then um, as I've been, you know, researching this more, uh, I um, read work from people who study it from different directions than I do. And one of the, one of the most disturbing kind of trajectories of research is watching the growing gap in debt levels between white and black college uh, graduates mm -hmm. um, after. So it's not just that black college students take out more debt than white or Latino students um, when in that they have a higher level when they leave when they graduate it's four years after this debt gap has tripled mm. 12 years after they they start college um, the debt gap has grown more and uh, last year it turned out they looked at um, a cohort like a group of people who were 20 years out from starting college Mm -hmm. They found out that the the median white student had paid off almost all their loans. They were almost all done. They had five percent left. The median black student still owed ninety five percent of what they'd started with. Wow! After two decades. Wow! And I've been saying, like, if you wanted to design a system that produced unequal, like, disparate outcomes that produce one set of outcomes for black Americans and one set of outcomes for white Americans. I do not see how you could do better than to produce than, than this system with those numbers. And, and this comes back to the racial wealth gap, which is why I got into this in the first place, because I was trying to understand something that um, I didn't know until I started graduate school and most people I teach don't know, which is that white Americans have 10 times roughly the wealth that black Americans have. Mm -hmm. so this may seem like yeah I can see how this gives you advantages in terms of like buying a house um 
uh, getting ahead, maybe saving for college so that you can, your kids don't have to take out debt at, at all. But even if you have debt, mm-hmm. if you, if your family has wealth, they can pay off your, you know, give you a down payment on your house so you can focus on paying your loans. They can, um, sometimes just give you a house. They can give you money. You can inherit money to pay off your debt. And what we're seeing is this cumulative effect of all of these different types of differences and different decisions and options open to white and black Americans, such that 20 years later, if you're a white American, you're probably going to have paid off your loans, at least last generation worth of white Americans. I think that debt has gotten so high that that my white students are going to have a very hard time paying off their debt too. Mm-hmm. But um, but it's it's a completely different story for Black Americans. Um, besides the fact that they were much more likely to have been targeted by predatory for-profit colleges, which is a whole other thing. <laughs> but just <laughs> taking on taking on this like uh, you know how wealth is underlying your ability to even pay off your debt, mm-hmm. um, I think is important to 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 understand why, why for some people debt just doesn't go away no matter how much you put towards it. Mm-hmm. And for other people, you know, you can, it is still good debt in that it still carries an advantage, you got a better job, and that you can eventually pay your way out of it. Mm-hmm. Whew. I mean, those stats are so sobering. I mean, and yes. as you mentioned, it's, it's so important to think about the bigger picture, right? It's not just the student loan debt part of it, but it's also thinking about the um, wealth or the potential wealth and generational wealth, um, building capacity or capability, I should say not capacity, but capability and how it's just not there when we think about the effects of student loan debt. Yeah, yeah. Um, we. So we tend, like, those of us who, like, look at the racial wealth gap in social science, we tend, like, people have tended to describe it as something that comes from historical factors. Mm -hmm. So that it came from things like that mortgage system I was talking about that started in the 1930s, that it came from as far back as slavery and the ability, like, were you owning property or were you owned as property? Like the lack of reparations, we have, you know, Mm -hmm. sharecropping systems. We've got all these like very significant historical factors um, for why it was um, made easy for white people to build wealth and made very difficult for black people to build or hold on to wealth in Mm -hmm. many cases. Um, but what I have, what I got, uh, where I got into this was I was looking at the fact that this wealth gap was already so big, but then it doubled over the recession, the Mm. last recession. (laughs) Um, uh, and, uh, and I was just like, this means we need to look at what's happening now. Yes. Because if this was just like only historic, like residual, uh, factors, you know, that were still kind of with us from the past and everyone was on a track and they were staying on that track, that should be, you know, slowly, you know, staying about steady. Mm-hmm. But why would a crisis make those numbers jump up so much? And that made me think, I want to know also what's happening now. Like what, what are financial, um, like personal financial situations and also like the financial industry itself what they are doing that could be possibly making the racial wealth gap worse right now. 
mm-hmm. in the present day. And when I looked, I started seeing things all over the place where the subprime mortgage industry wasn't like an aberration. It was, it showed us a lot about what um, people in the finance industry, including like people who think about student debt in various ways, the way they are looking for new markets and new places to invest in always. And that it, you know, students are one more pool of like untapped potential for people to kind of <laughs> get into. And, um, and you know, it's a, it's a disturbing, it's a disturbing way to understand, but I didn't invent it. <laughs> it's, how it, it's, it's like looking at how other people are viewing the situation. I would really love for us to be able to, to get out of, um, away from that model and, and, and have people understand here's how you are seeing so yeah. that, you can um so we can advocate for ourselves and say we deserve to not be seen as like you know revenue right right absolutely you know and that's so important you know to think about what you said earlier about how can we imagine you know a different type of future instead of just staying constrained in this box of kind of just going along with you know this outline that has been laid out for us in order mm-hmm. to to be the revenue right to be someone else's <laughs> resource um it's hard to see outside of that when mm-hmm. it has become so normal like everyone is mm-hmm. doing it this is just yep. kind of the, the process of adulthood right it's just kind of what you do and because it's become just so much a part of our lives we don't question it at all Um, So I love that your work is doing this questioning of thinking about like, what do we know, but now that we know it, what can we think of differently? How can we, you know, come up with a different solution or a different way of doing things? Um, So I want to talk more about that, but let's take another break. You're listening to Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. And we're back on Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Sanaa and I'm here with Dr. Louise Seamster. And we're going to talk about what a different future might look like if we can detach ourselves from this idea of we must have student debt. Um, what, What could we do differently? What is a different type of future for us look like? Oh, thank you for asking that. Um. I, you know, things have changed very quickly, and I'm really excited about that. Um, the idea of, of debt cancellation uh, was coming, um, it came uh, out of partly the Occupy Wall Street movement. Mm-hmm. So that was around 2011. Hopefully, most of you remember. <laughs> My students don't know about this anymore. No, no, they would not. <laughs> They just look at me blankly, but, um, you know, and I think, I think we haven't done the best job of like historical documentation of some of of some of the stuff we've lived through in the last 20 years. But, um, so after the great recession, um, it started, this was a, it did start at wall street, but there, you know, there was Occupy Duke when I was at Duke Mm -hmm. and there was Occupy every, everywhere. Um, you know, people camping out and there was real possibility and people, that was where the, um, the, the slogan, we are the 99% came from and mm-hmm. thinking about the 1%, um, which is credited to um, David Graeber, who's a anthropologist who recently died, unfortunately, but he 
he wrote a lot about debt. Like he wrote one of those like giant books about debt. Um, that, that's been helpful for me to understand it. But um, uh, we, the, the debt collective that has emerged out of that group arguing for a debt jubilee has been pushing for just debt cancellation. And um, some of the folks working with them have, you know, gone into the uh, inner bowels of the government and have, have um, argued as, as uh, you know, like legal scholars that the uh, president's office has the executive authority to cancel pretty much all uh, uh, federal student debt, um, mm -hmm. just without even any legislation. Mm -hmm. And so that is where um, uh, Senator Warren was coming from uh, with her uh, presidential campaign uh, initiative to cancel um, up to $50,000 in student debt for each person who had it. Um, and then in the past few months, um, uh, she issued a resolution with Senator Chuck Schumer, um, both saying, we believe the next president should, can and should cancel mm -hmm. up to $50,000 of student debt um, through executive order. But also um, Chuck Schumer announced that he was going to be um, pursuing legislation to execute Senator Warren's plan mm -hmm. um, to cancel 50,000 debt. So that would have to go through the House and the Senate, which is why the um, Senate race matters so much right now in Georgia, because that determines control of the Senate and whether, um, uh, you know, legislation would be a possibility or not, basically. Um, but I've heard Senator Chuck Schumer talking about that as recently as two days ago, saying that um, uh, that he is working on convincing um, President-elect Biden that he does have the authority and that Biden is doing that research himself. Mm -hmm. So this is all very interesting. And, you know, I mean, I always joke, I think you were there uh, two years ago at a panel that I was on when people said, what do we do about this debt, student debt crisis? And I was like, just cancel it. And I said it in a pretty like obnoxious way. <laughs> like I didn't think it would happen. Um, I was, I, but I, I feel like we have this weird job where we get to study whatever we want and then say what we want about it. And I feel like that's a huge privilege and I should use that privilege to, to like actually say what I think. Mm -hmm. um, should be done about something and uh, and I don't think um so I I am glad that I was honest because I think that was one small piece of how somebody knew to contact me to say Senator Warren wants to talk about race and student debt do you want to work on this and how I got the opportunity to be part of like actually working on cancellation so um partly I think <laughs> You know, this has been a lesson in learning that you can manifest things into happening. <laughs> yeah, um, but uh, but also that that um, you know we're not things aren't gonna get better on their own. Um, but that we can actually sometimes identify real specific problems and harms and say we could just make these go away. Especially with something like federally held student debt, that is something that that can you know it's different than. Um, you know, it's different than like a physical structure where you would have to unbuild it. Like you, you can actually just erase it. And so, um, like, th I, what I think is that, um, 
to me, to me, erasing, like canceling student debt early on in, in a new presidency would be a great, like, not just symbolic move, but a way to reframe what is possible in mm -hmm. other areas. I've heard a lot of people here say things like, why should that be our very first priority? Like people are literally hungry right now. Like mm -hmm. lots of people don't have student debt. We, what about housing? This is all very valid. And like um, in, in that um, people have, uh, right now student debt is on hold. And so nobody mm -hmm. is faced with those loans. And, um, and, and I can see how there are more pressing issues. And I don't think it should be pursued to the exclusion of all other policies. I don't think this right. should be like <laughs> four years of work on this one thing. Um, but what I think is, uh, you know, like large scale cancellation of student debt as a start could get people, I think it's good to pick up on the energy of like, well, why not this too? Yeah. And it's really a yes and situation where people will be like, well, couldn't we do this for for X, like, mm -hmm. you know, I think we, you know, if we're going to robustly fund public higher education, what about we robustly fund public hospitals again? What, you know, like what, like what else can we do this for? Um, mm -hmm. And how can we kind of bring this into a larger um, reinvestment in the public sphere itself? Um, that, that, that can kind of, we can have our imaginations kind of reawoken mm -hmm. by something like student debt cancellation and again it's it not in that selfish way of like well I need mine too what if you know yeah. <laughs> but, but like whoa we we did this like we we we're building some we're building something different we we are that's more open that everybody could participate in if we had like you know well-funded public higher education maybe more people would go to college to learn what they actually would like to know about the world and like, and, you know, and have a different job. Um, and I think that will be a huge economic stimulus, but I also think that that's not the only value that we should have in, in thinking about what, um, what we could do differently if we, um, if we restructured how we're funding um, student debt and got rid of the debt that people are holding. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I have a couple of questions that I know people who are listening will want to know more about. So one is why the 50,000 cancellation mm -hmm. and not just say, let's just cancel it all. And then relatedly, because um, I know people are thinking, you know, oh my goodness, if we just cancel debt, like, isn't something terrible going to happen? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, those are those are both good questions. The the $50,000 uh, number came from our research because Senator Warren asked us to look at what would um, help the largest number of people the most mm -hmm. without increasing the racial wealth gap. Mm -hmm. So she had this kind of like two-part approach um, because uh, in all that I've been describing, we don't usually lift up racial equity first mm -hmm. in terms of thinking about um, who, who a policy will benefit. And, and yet, uh, the policies that we stick with usually end up benefiting white Americans the most. Um, <laughs> so, Imagine that. So, um, uh, so I say we don't, we don't talk about racial equity, you know, but we're, that doesn't mean we're race blind usually mm -hmm. in building policy. So like in thinking about um, this student debt system, which has 
the harm has been so targeted at Black Americans in particular, um, such that like the last data I just um, uh, looked at with my co-author Raf um, showed that the median Black student debt is now thirty thousand um, dollars, which is just <laughs> That's exactly. a lot of money, <laughs> and it's going up very, very astronomically, like very quickly. Mm -hmm. um, it was twenty thousand dollars just three years before in the survey that we were looking at. So um, it, this is a, a huge problem, and so and and so coming this to this, knowing that this is a a problem that right now is disproportionately affecting Black Americans, means that I would want any policy designed to fix that harm to take them into account. Mm -hmm. um the most and so you know under the constraints of the time we had to to think about this right. <laughs> well it was my introduction to working with uh uh presidential candidates they don't sit around and think for four yeah. years like we do <laughs> um, but uh you know the number we came up with was it was clear with the data that we had at the time that fifty thousand dollars was kind of a, a ceiling above which um, it wasn't really benefiting more, many more people, mm -hmm. but as a whole white Americans, the more you forgave, the more money was coming to them. And that was not necessarily true for black and Latino Americans. Mm -hmm. So, because, um, debt is a weird thing where the majority of people have a little bit of debt and mm -hmm. that can keep play a huge role in in their lives and be very difficult for them to pay off even five thousand dollars or less mm -hmm. so most people have a little bit of debt a growing number of people have a good amount of debt mm -hmm. and then at the end there's a few people who are holding huge amounts of debt when mm -hmm. that's like the people who went to medical school and law school and financed it um and so what um senator warren was concerned about was that full debt cancellation would be, you know, benefiting disproportionately um, these like better off white Americans. And this seemed like a, a, a decent way to like kind of bridge the gap where you were both, you know, this is not a small policy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, talking about $50,000 yeah. in debt cancellation, it's not, it's, it's pretty bold, but it's also, um, trying to to take into account like how this plays into a larger wealth gap story mm -hmm. and so that was how that came up um like since then with the newer data we have found that you know even fifty thousand dollars may not be enough which is <laughs> disturbing in its own right right um but that uh but we are now proposing some maybe something like a range between fifty thousand and seventy five thousand might might be necessary. And I also think that to the degree, this is not any part of any plan. This is just mm -hmm. me talking um, as, a, as a person um, who studies this. Um, but I think that there are still plenty of Black Americans who have more than even $75,000 mm -hmm. in debt, who, um, who went to grad school. A lot of them were pushed out of the labor market with the recession. Mm -hmm. um, and into grad school to try and, you know, improve their chances of getting a job again. And, um, and so I think that I, th to me, this is like the start. <laughs> and mm -hmm. I would love there to be other policies and improvements to the policies that we do have still 
to, to make it easier for people to repay their debt, to get it forgiven. We could lower the interest rate to nothing. You know, there's so mm-hmm. many other things that we could do to actually make paying off your debt feasible and to cancel the debt of the people who most need to have their debt canceled. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. You asked another question. Yeah, was, so for people who me, think like something bad is going to happen, yeah, the world just cancel it. Yeah. <laughs> um, right. So, um, I mean, there's like, I think there's usually two ways people are meaning that. One is what they call moral hazard, which mm-hmm. is like, wouldn't people learn a bad lesson if they, if they were taught that <laughs> you don't actually have to repay <sighs> their debt? Um, and then the other part is like, wouldn't be, there be some kind of like catastrophic effect on the government or like, you know, do the taxpayers have to settle, take this cost on themselves? Mm-hmm. So um, for the first part, um, like I see this as a retroactive funding of higher education. Mm-hmm. This might be rather than like this, this is a moral hazard. But the, my point is that like the moral hazard is really imposing debt on the students. I wish. Right. I know that's not the use of the term, but like <laughs> I think the really immoral immorality here is expecting students to to shoulder this burden by by themselves, and that this is erasing a harm. It's not causing a harm, mm-hmm. um, and that and I mean, in the past couple of decades, we have seen uh, you know who's considered too big to fail, and so they get any type of funding mm-hmm. thrown at them without having to pay the, the, the price or, or learn to stop doing, mm-hmm. um, uh, ca- causing the problems they're doing. Um, and, and also like people have been either paying this debt often for years or decades or else they cannot pay it at all. I don't see how, um, I don't think that people will take the lesson of like, oh, haha, I will suddenly become an irresponsible person. Right. <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> I don't think that we'll have like the dissolution of society as a result of this. I think, um, <laughs> I think only good things will happen. Yeah. Um, but then as far as like the impact on the government, this is a complex um, issue and very wonky people are debating it right now as far as whether, whether the government um, uh, really has a, you know, a limit that it can mm-hmm. spend. So people within a, what's called modern monetary theory argue that that doesn't matter and that the government can print money. And so this, this doesn't matter. Um, also, this isn't like a cost. The government isn't going to pay their loans. It, most of this debt is now held by the government itself. And so this would just mean erasing that, you know, take, like going into their system and, and changing the amount owed. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, this again is like, it's a complex answer, but I, as somebody who um, was kind of an outsider to economics originally and has kind of retained that identity, mm-hmm. one thing I um, have, have kind of held to myself is, is that when anything, when people say it's this complicated or they can't agree on the basic facts about like, how much the government expects to get back from, from the loans or how much they're putting out versus how much they're making. Um, that that some, a lot of this is just a, a plain old obfuscation of, of, a, of, of a, where, where and we don't have great accounting. And the, the point is that um, the government has been making 
more, especially from the students who are repaying over longer periods of time. They have been making money back from students. And as somebody put it recently, the question is really whether we're going to, whether, we're, whether we think it's okay for the government to continue to make money on the backs of low income and middle class Americans through this system or not. Um, and that, that that should be the way that we frame this and not think about how much it costs the government to erase this debt. Mm-hmm. Yes, I love that. I love that reframing of what the situation yeah. is. And I think so much of thinking about student debt is a reframing and thinking mm-hmm. about, you know, education and its purpose is a reframing. So thank you so much for being with us this morning. I have learned so much and I know our listeners have learned so much as well. Dr. Wee Seamster, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much again to Dr. Louise Seamster, y'all. I learned so much today, and I know you did as well. For today's positive note, I just want to encourage everyone to imagine a different future. Free ourselves from what we have known or what we think is how it's always been and think about what we wish that it could be. Together, we can create a new vision for our future, for our future together. Y'all, can't wait for you to join me again next Saturday morning, 9 a.m. Central Standard Time here on WYXR.org. Let's grab coffee with Sanaa.